and Romans chapter 6. Tell that woman to stop singing, please, Bert. Okay, thank you. Was that you, Patty? I'm sorry. I didn't. Okay, I, didn't, I would never say that if I knew that was you. Be aware that there are a couple of Romans messages out on the information table in print, and I really recommend that you take a look at those, get quiet for about 15 minutes somewhere and read them because they are kind of an improvement on the spoken part in in the sense that I usually beef them up a lot in my editing of them and really re-edit them probably three or four times, and they're still roughly edited. You're going to find mistakes in there. Be kind, please. And please keep Judy Hulbleib in prayer. Her mom was called home to be with the Lord last night, and that's always a difficult transition. Her mom had eight kids, brought them all up, Splendidly, as we know from the testimony of Judy herself. So, Romans chapter 6, the two written doctrine sheets that are out there tonight, also one of them is on the royal motif, which is an extremely important theme in Romans that we will be developing, I think. It's one of the central themes. I hope you'll pick that up too. And then our official present arms tape or message, which is going to be continued tonight with the subject will be called code word paristemi. It's the Greek word P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I. Paristemi, accent there, no dot over the I, I forgot about that. P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I, in English there is one. Accent here, long E, pronounced A-Y, peristemi, or peristemi. And it's used in Romans 6, 13 times 2, 16 times 1, and 19 times 2. So there is a central, what we would call an inclusio, Five uses of it in a small, dense passage. And it means to present yourselves, present your bodies, present your body parts, which is really yourselves, your entire being to God, in a kind of unconditional surrender. That same word is used on what I'm calling the right flank of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. My strategy in teaching Romans is unusual. It is a pincer strategy in which we are squeezing from both sides, both flanks, to the center. The center is 5 through 11, and we're going to go through that verse by verse probably. The left flank is 1 through 4, the right flank in which we get into the daily living of the church or the community of believers and the importance of that. 12 to 16. So we've been putting the squeeze on. There's a saying among military strategists that all plans go down the tubes 
as soon as the fog of war begins. And that's true sometimes, but we've been able to hold this plan together pretty well, the pincer strategy. So tonight we're taking 12-1 and following to the center, six, well, let's say really from 13 to 19, but I'm going to get the whole shebang from Romans 6 tonight, from 613 to 23. But we had already taken from the left flank of Romans 3.8, where the accusation about Paul's gospel being slanderously reported to be a way of saying, let's go out and do evil that good may come. We call it in modern parlance, a license to sin. We've shown the stupidity of that charge, the libelous slander of that accusation. In Romans 6, now we're going to hit from the right flank, press toward the center in Romans 6. So let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation in which we can prepare our hearts for the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Father, we do present ourselves to you, present ourselves in availability to your Holy Spirit so that we may be taught of God tonight in fulfillment of the promise in John John 6.45, they shall all be taught of God. And we thank you for this privilege. It goes beyond any possible way of thanking you tonight, Father, but we do so in Jesus' name. And ask that you will grant us the grace that we might make the most of this opportunity tonight for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So it's code word peristemi. We will apply the pincer strategy by pressing from the right flank, Romans 12, 1 and following, to the center, a center section, namely Romans 6, as we have already pressed from Romans chapter 3, the left flank, especially 3.8a, to Romans 6. Paul's gospel has a rectifying power, a power to not just declare righteous, but to set right, to make right. And that power includes sanctification. It's not separate from a thing called sanctification or holiness. It is inclusive of it. The gospel of God about his son, as it's called in Romans 1, 1 and 2, which is the gospel that Paul made his own, his own proclamation, as we know from Romans 2.16, Romans 16.26, and 2 Timothy 2.8, where he says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, according to the flesh of the seed of David, risen from the dead, according to my gospel. And we've already shown that contrary to slanderous accusations made in Paul's time and in our own time, the slanderous accusation that Paul's gospel leads to a sinful lifestyle is totally reproved. Paul demonstrates here that it, in fact, leads to a divinely approved livingness and to successful combat in what is an apocalyptic war ongoing now. Christians often are not aware of it. That's sad. But it's an apocalyptic war that is raging in this juncture 
of the two ages, two ages, one that's passing away, and that's 1 John 2, 8. John says the age, the present darkness, it's called, is passing away already. It's already passing away, and the true light is shining. That's his way of saying that the old age is on the way out. It's passe. It's obsolete. And the new age or the oncoming invasive age has come in. The true light is already shining. And that's another way that Paul says it. Another way that Paul says it is in Romans thirteen eleven to know what time it is. And again, we ought to be aware of what time it is. What time is it? It's at the juncture of two classing, clashing ages. It's at a time of apocalyptic eschatological war, not something to happen out in the future like popular fiction, Christian fiction teaches, but it is something ongoing in the present. It is a war that was initiated with the invasion of Jesus Christ into the present evil age and with the invasion of God the Holy Spirit into the present age. We're all recruited into this combat And again, once again, it's unfortunate that many Christians are on the disabled list with regard to this combat. They are hors de combat, as the scripture defines them, and they need to be brought into rank and into line by the Spirit of God. We want to be a phalanx of advancing believers, unified in Christ, going forward with what Philippians 1.8 calls the guts of the Lamb. Shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, not fighting each other, but aligned with each other in a spiritual warfare. That's what is the subject here. Paul's gospel prepares us for it and equips us for it. And the juncture of the present ages, or the juncture of the ages, the passing away of the old and the invasion of the new is ongoing right now. Paul put it this way in Romans 13, as we will see The night is far spent. The day is at hand. So put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 11 through 12. Knowing the time, he says. Knowing what time it is. Christians have to know what time it is. Time to get up, wake from sleep, put on the full armor from God, and stand and withstand in the evil day. The night is almost over. The day is at hand. That's the clashing of two ages, aeons. And that's the time of the apocalyptic war. It's also found in Galatians 1.4, Galatians 5.13 to 4.24. We will get into that at another time. So the code word for this particular application of the pincer strategy, as I've shown you, is paristemi. P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I. And it's significant in Romans 12.1 because it initiates or inaugurates an entire section of Scripture, Romans 12.1 through 15.13, which envelops and describes and defines the way of living and the way of life for the Christian community in the present everyday living. A divinely approved livingness which goes way beyond ethics and human morality, but both ethics and morality are established in this higher integration of spiritual living. The goal of this teaching 
is the subjugation of the same power that is sin itself as a suprahuman power. Paul reveals it as a suprahuman power, sin, capital S-I-N. The goal of this teaching then is the subjugation of sin, which is the same power that fuels the group biases that have fragmented and polarized Christians and saints in Rome and in our own time. The saints in Rome were polarized into separate groups. It's almost like looking at a fight with fighters on each side, and they only come out to fight. They have their own corners, and they only come out to fight. Fighting one another makes them hors de combat, which is a French term for useless or out of action for the spiritual combat. If we're fighting one another, we're not fighting the true adversary. Our flesh, we are fighting one another. We're fighting flesh and blood. We are not engaged in the spiritual battle. The goal of this teaching, then, is the practical subjugation of the same power, sin, that fuels the group biases in Rome, causing hostile divisions and rendering the community disabled for the apocalyptic war. The saints are out of the action of this eschatological war if they are fragmented, polarized, and fighting against each other. Not only is that the situation in Rome, but it's largely a situation among the churches today in America and elsewhere. So we begin with Romans 12.1, the initiating verse of the right flank of Romans, the epistle. Very important verse, and we'll go over it more than one time. In keeping with the pincer strategy, Romans 12.1, I'll translate it from the original text. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you. This is an apostolic impartation of incentive, strong incentive to the troops. I urge you, siblings, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters both, through the ever-renewable compassions of God. Please notice that I've translated the mercies of God as ever-renewable compassions of God. Because this is taken largely from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The mercies of God are, or the compassions of God are renewed every morning. We are not perishing. We do not perish, says the prophet, because his mercies, his great compassions are renewed every morning. This is what Paul's referring to. This is the precedent for that passage, for that phrase in Romans 1. To present, there it is, paristemi, to present. Here's the code word for tonight, present. And it's also the code word for the sheet that's out on the information table tonight, free for the taking. I urge you, siblings, through the ever-renewable compassions of God, to present your bodies. Somata is used here. Somata. Somata is the plural for bodies, but it's a pars pro toto term for the whole of your being. Put at the disposal of God your entire being, just like you were presenting a sacrifice to God on the altar. In fact, that's what he says. Somata, plural, your bodies, and thusias is singular. Thusias means sacrifice. Bodies, plural, sacrifice, singular. It's talking about a community of believers 
who are available to God. And when a community is available to God and totally belongs to Christ, as Galatians 5.24 says, they have crucified the flesh with its affections, its distorted ambitions, its lusts or its patterns of desiring to have preeminence over others, etc. Once again, backing up, therefore, I urge you, siblings, through the ever-renewable compassions of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This, again, the idea is conveyed as communal or community. They all, including all the formerly feuding groups, become a community that's offered up to God as a unit with unit integrity. All of Romans is a bid for peace. Then he says, holy, Romans 6.19 is where he uses that term also, as we'll see, and pleasing to God. In other words, your entire being, your bodies presented to God as a sacrifice has already been considered by God to be holy, set apart for his use, deployed for the front lines, as it were, and acceptable to him, pleasing to God. Paul then says, this is your logical priestly service. He uses the word latria here for priestly service. So paristemi, our key word, our code word tonight, or our catch word, however you want to put it, means to place or to present at one's disposal. This code word does double duty in Romans. It's used in a military sense, as we see it in Romans 6, and it's used in a priestly sense in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 6, again, the military sense of paristemi presides, while in Romans 12, the priestly sense prevails. With the newness of life, as Romans 6, 4 describes it, the newness of life to which we were raised together with Christ, with that newness of life comes a new way of devotedness, a new way of devotion, a new way of knowing, a new way of thinking, a new way of reasoning, reflecting, concluding in our minds. The newness of life involves a radical, to use the kind of fancy term, epistemological transformation, which conforms us to the way of knowing that characterizes an altogether new aeon that has been ushered in with the event of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. With that event has been ushered in an entirely new way of knowing, thinking, concluding, reflecting, determining that is unknown up until the time of Christ. It is ushered in by the advent and the event of Christ and then by the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit, his advent. So once again, let's look at it carefully, examining it, treasuring it, cherishing this passage. Romans 12, I'll shore it up a little bit. It says, therefore, I, Paul as an apostle, urge you siblings by the mercies of God. Once again, the phrase the mercies of God has its precedent in the Old Testament. It's used in connection with an episode in the history of Israel during the reign of David when the king was required by God through a prophet named Gad, G-A-D, to choose between two disasters that were going to befall Israel because of David's failure. 
David's alignment to a satanic policy, which I will not get into tonight, but it caused him to invite disaster upon Israel. A measured one, a calculated one, not one that would destroy Israel, but one that would discipline David. The choice that Gad offered him, God through Gad offered David, you got a choice. Either a plague, a limited disease plague, or an invasion by a belligerent army. David thought it over. He made a decision based on the mercies of God, literally the same phrase used in Romans 12.1, the mercies of God, ton oiktirmon of God, the great mercies of God. Because David figured this, if we are to undergo a plague, then we're totally in God's hands. If we undergo a military invasion, we will be under the subjugation of men. God is more merciful than men. Therefore, I'll pick the plague. Now, that's roughly what happened there. In 2 Samuel, you can read about it if you want, 2 Samuel. But here's the verse in 24, 14. David chose based on the mercies of God. 2 Samuel 24, 14. David answered Gad. The king answers the prophet. I have great anxiety, he says. Please. Let us fall into Yahweh's hands, into the Lord's hands, because his mercies, same phrase as Romans 12, 1, are great. His mercies are great. But don't let me fall into human hands. How great that is. Good reasoning. Yahweh's mercies, which are found in Lamentations 3.22. We don't have a Greek text for that, but we have the Hebrew equivalent, which is rakham, R-A-C-H-A-M. The great mercies of God literally are never spent. Now, I'm using the word literally the way it should be used, literally. It means they are never spent. They're never spent out. They have no limit. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 136 sometimes, one of my favorites, because the psalmist tells you that 26 times. His mercies never fail. They are everlasting. They have no limit. Not only do they have no limit, but they never get old. They are always new. It's always like you just got hit with it, and wow, it's spectacular. It's always, it's never antiquated. It never gets old. It's always renewed. And that's what Paul's talking about here, the mercies of God. They have no limit. Just as love cannot fail, God's mercies cannot have a limit to them. We do not perish, said Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.22, quote, because God's mercies never come to an end. They never fail. They have no limit. Lamentations 3.23 also goes on to say, They are new every morning. They are new every morning. Then he adds this. Great is your faithfulness. Speaking to Yahweh. Great is your faithfulness. This agrees with Paul who declares in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then in 1.17 he says, For by it the righteousness of God is, is revealed from his faithfulness to his faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness here that he's talking about, not human faith, 
but divine faithfulness demonstrated in Christ. We start this Christian life. We enter this combat from a position of great strength. We enter clothed with the righteousness of Christ and clothed with Christ as our righteousness. And so this is Yahweh's great faithfulness, which was revealed in Christ's advent and his event. We may paraphrase Romans 12:1a then this way. Therefore, I urge you by the ever new. Hasidim is the word that's used in the Hebrew. Same as in Isaiah 65, 17. I make all things new. I urge you by the ever new mercies of God. The mercies of God are therefore new. We are all to walk in newness of life, says Romans 6, 4. And to serve in the newness of the spirit in Romans 7, 6. We have this never antiquated, as Jesus said, in the kingdom of heaven, there is no rust that corrupts or no mold or corrosive effects. Everything's new, always new. And it never is, well, tomorrow it won't be new anymore. It'll be just as new tomorrow as it was today. It's a newness that is indescribable. And that's what the new creation is all about. So we walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4, and serve in newness of the spirit in Romans 7, 6. We have this never antiquated, always renewable newness of life because of the always new mercies of God, the never antiquated pouring out of the spirit of life to us and in us. So Romans 12. I hit it so many different times that I want to get the sense of it, and that's what my job is in Nehemiah 8.8. So by the mercies of God, which are ever new, expanded translation, I, Paul, urge you, siblings, to present or to make available, as in Romans 6.13, 6.16, and 6.19, your bodies, which is the sum total of your members, as he uses it in Romans 6.13, 16, and 19. Notice how the pincer from the right flank, Romans 12.1 pushes toward the center in Romans 6.13, 6.16, 6.19 with the word peristemi. Present your bodies to God as a living offering or sacrifice that is set apart, that is set apart for his use and acceptable to God as your reasonable act of worship. In other words, verse 2, do not be conformed to or do not have your allegiance to this age. You see, this age is the age that's passing away. It's the darkness passing away. The age that's coming is the light, the dawn of which is already spilling over a mountain, and the mountain is called Golgotha, the cross of Christ. So, in other words, do not be conformed to this age, this present evil age or eon, which is what Galatians 1.4 calls it, a present evil aeon. But be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking. Note that translation. Transform 
by the making new, anakinosis, central word kinos, new, by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained will of God. What he's after here, and we'll have to hit this another time, this makes you an instantiation or a present instance of God's will to bring all things under the gracious headship of Christ. What you're doing here by this action of obedience and presenting yourselves, your bodies as a living sacrifice, is you are allowing God to transform you as an instance of or as a testimony to what he's going to do in the final moments of history, bring everything under the headship of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his will. That's his will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, on the right flank of Romans, and presses into the center like a pincer movement in Romans 6, especially with regard to 613, 6.16, 6.19. Let's look at it in the context. Now back to Romans 6. The verb to present or to make available is deployed in connection with placing yourselves at the disposal of God as slaves of righteousness. Paul uses the word slavery in a very unusual way. And we'll remember the quote of Paul W. Meyer, which said, Justification is a change of controlling allegiance. A change of controlling allegiance. It sets one free from sin only insofar as it makes one an obedient slave of God. To be an obedient slave of God, well, that's all good. It's, it's about liberation. It's about freedom. And so what we have in Romans 6.13 through 19 is five uses of peristomy. We have 1P, 2P, 3, and right in the center, peristomy. Then we have 4P, 5P, peristomy, 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 peristomy. And what it does is it presents an imperative. In fact, I called this an imperatival, I-M-P-A-R-I-T-R-A-T-I-V-A-L. Imperatival means it's an imperative. It's described as an imperative command, an imperatival inclusio, where we have peristomy at the beginning and peristomy at the end. We have peristomy in the center. This is a tremendous formation of believers in the apocalyptic war that form is found right in second corinthians or right in romans 6 13 to 19 it's what paul calls a form of doctrine which is better a pattern of teaching to which we have been entrusted in romans 6 17 but you don't have to figure out all that stuff that's my job but let's just look at it for from the standpoint of a translation now romans 16 6 13 paul saying this do not present here we have the negative plus the imperative peristemi do not present your members now the word members here is body members members of the body he's talking about the same thing as he's talking about in romans only in romans he uses the word somata which means bodies here he uses the word tamele which means the parts of the bodies there's a similarity between the two 
And so peristomy and body parts and bodies are all over the place here. There's body parts and bodies everywhere. But the point is that you make a conscious decision in response to the finished work of Christ to present yourselves at the disposal of God. And you'll find that when you've done this, you will be faced with a situation, maybe we'll call it temptation. And in that situation of temptation, you will be truly tempted, strongly pulled in one direction to sin. And the Holy Spirit will come into your remembrance and say, did you present yourself as an obedient slave to righteousness? Or did you present yourselves as an obedient slave to sin and sin's power? And you'll answer, well, I presented myself as an obedient slave to God. And then the Holy Spirit will empower you to make a decision of your will that beforehand would have been impossible to you. And I'm including all kinds of things here from temptations to be proud, temptations to be stressful, temptations to be anxious, temptations to be seductive, all of those things, temptations to take one or two of substances that you were once addicted to. The power now is in your hands by the grace of God to say no to temptation. And then God comes in like a flood and graces you out. That's the bottom line of this, practically speaking. So, do not present your members, the sum total of your body parts, or, as we've heard, your entire being to sin as weapons. He does not say instruments here. That's a pathetic translation. It's a sissified one, if I may use the word. It's a, the word instruments is, if you've got a translation that says instruments, that your translation in that particular passage is paltry and pathetic the word is hopla and it means weapons a hoplophobe was a a spartan soldier who had on the full heavy armament he had on and the same with the romans a hoplophile a hoplophile in romans in the roman army was someone who had a shield had a sword had a belt had combat boots for traction had a Breastplate had a helmet, sometimes a spear. Hopla, do not present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, which are activities that are antagonistic to your rectification. On the contrary, as those who are alive from the dead, and you are, you died, and your life is now hid with Christ in God. This is what he's been after all the way from Romans 6 1 through 6 12 on the contrary he says as those who are alive from the dead present there's the word peristomy again the second time it's used yourselves to God just like peristomy to God in Romans 12 1 and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Righteousness here means rectitude or a divinely approved livingness. A divinely approved livingness. That's a catchphrase that's going to be very important in Romans 4 and many other passages in Romans. For sin 
will not lord it over you. That means it will not command and have your allegiance. Since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul is saying to those who are under the law and, and accused his gospel of grace as being something that brings you under sin. He's saying the very fact that you're not under law and under grace means that you're not under the power of sin. If you're under the power of the law, you're under the power of sin, not the other way around. So, as he says in verse 14, for sin will not lord it over you because you're not under the law but under grace. Based on this, Paul says, what do we conclude? Should we sin, he's going all the way back to Romans 6.1 now, should we continue under allegiance to sin as a cosmic power Because we're not under law, but under grace? Of course not, he says. Now in verse 16, or do you not know that to the one whom you are presenting, there it is again, peristemi, to the one whom you are presenting yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey either of sin leading to death or of obedience to God leading to righteousness. The death that he's speaking of here is a separation from the experience of everlasting life, the life of the coming age, the life that's available to us in Christ Jesus. Here's an interpretive point, because it's a very important verse, but it's almost impossible to give the sense of this verse by the translation. The translation is obtuse. It's almost opaque. It's hard to see what he's saying here. So I'm going to give you the sense of what he means. He's saying, when you are presenting yourselves to someone as his slave, then you are at that one service. If you present, it's, very, it's almost like too obvious. It's almost like a Captain Obvious saying. If you present yourselves to someone as his slave or her slave, then you are at that one's service all the time. So if you present yourselves to sin, you are in sin's service leading to death. He'll... Take this up in Romans 8, 5 through 7. If you present yourselves as a slave to God, or we could say to Christ, as Paul did in Romans 1, 1, then you are exclusively at his service. Exclusively at his service. In his majesty's service. That's what he's saying. As Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I were at the service of men, I would no longer be the servant of Christ because you can't be both. If you presented yourselves as, in, as a slave to Christ, a willing slave, that is, not as a servile, groveling slave, but as a willing slave to him, 
then you are exclusively at his service. Not at the service of sin, not at the service of the power of sin, not at the service of other people's lusts and desires for your life, not at the service of somebody in a hierarchical church organization that demands that you tow a denominational or affiliational line. You would no longer be the servant of Christ. You could pretend to be if you want, but you're not. If you present yourselves as a slave to God or to Christ, then you are exclusively at his service in righteousness or a divinely approved livingness. Conflate or put together, blend together, conflation, that's what Paul does quite often, Romans 6, 4 and 7, 6. And you'll see a description of this rectitude that he's talking about. This righteousness he's talking about is a new livingness involving service to Christ and to others in the newness of the spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts as opposed to the obsoleteness of the letter. There is a mutual exclusion here. Just like Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is kind of the God of money there. You cannot serve two masters. Bob Dylan was right when he wrote the song, you got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody because of the human weakness that we're in. The very human condition requires that we got to serve somebody. We serve ourselves or he would say you got to serve either you'll serve the devil or you'll be the servant of God. You'll either serve yourselves or the creature or the creator who is blessed forevermore. You got to serve somebody because that's the human condition. Paul say it in a moment. So. There is a mutual exclusivity here. You cannot serve God and mammon, Matthew 6, 24. He said you'll either lean toward the one and then hate the other, or you'll incline toward the other and hate the other. You'll, you'll incline toward serving God, you'll hate service to mammon. doesn't mean you'll hate money. It means you'll hate service to it, servitude to it. People who have servitude to money. People who, and today we have an almost phenomenal thing happening among people in the spotlight, whether they're actors or movie stars or people in the press or people, comedians at night. A root of bitterness has gripped people today because they have failed the grace of God. And that root of bitterness causes them to spew things out of their mouth by which many are defiled. And the Hebrew writer says, watch out for that. Pastors, watch out for that. And every Christian, watch out. If you have a friend that's begun to harbor a toxic root of bitterness and it's revealed by them constantly either complaining or maligning or gossiping or saying something in terms of vituperation, bitter speech, then check them out. Say, what's, what's the deal? What's you got in your craw? 
because it's something that defiles many. It's ruined congregations. It ruins news organizations. It ruins late-night TV. I used to like comedians, but I hate bitterness in comedians because they're no longer funny. They're just bitter and hateful. And that's, I, I don't watch them anymore. I don't, I'm not interested. But it's a phenomenon of our time, a root, toxic root of bitterness. Takes over people. Don't hate them. Pray for them. So, if, let me ask you this. Have you presented yourselves to God as his obedient slave? then his obedient slave, you are. If you're an obedient slave of his, then and only then are you an effective combatant in the apocalyptic war being waged throughout this juncture. This isn't the full coming of the age of Christ. It's the initiative part of it. This isn't the total end of the world as we know it. This isn't the end of the evil age. The Corinthians became enthusiastic. They were enthusiasts. They were already reigning. They weren't in combat. They were reigning already. And Paul said, I'm so glad that you're reigning up on that throne. I'm just the court jester. I'm a fool for Christ then. We are at a juncture of the ages. It started when Christ was crucified. And raised from the dead. And when the spirit made his advent. That was the crucial juncture clashing of two aeons. And the the clash is still on. It won't be on until Jesus Christ is visibly revealed to all humanity. And when all humanity in all of its times raised from the dead. Pledges allegiance to him as Yahweh. Until then there's a battle. Until then we have to live in a way that we won't be living when he comes where everything's all peace. And just a hint for people who hate. If a person desires a border around their property or a border around their country, it doesn't mean they hate. It's a little thing called common sense, which is useful in this age. Okay, just thought I'd drop that. So then... That's as close as I'll ever get to social commentary. So, If you're an obedient slave to sin, on the other hand, you are, French term, hors de combat. Hors de combat. That's how it's pronounced. Hors de combat. Doesn't mean whores of combat. It means hors de combat. Which in... If somebody gets injured on the pirates and they have to be out for a while, they're on the DL, disabled list, for a while. They're incapable. They're rendered incapable of combat. So if you are, as a Christian, an obedient slave to sin, then you are hors de combat at best. On the other hand, you are a traitor working for the other side at worst. Say, we just got into all this mercy and universal salvation stuff, and you're hitting us with this? Absolutely. Of course I am. Why wouldn't I? It's Bible. 
So, Romans 6.17 brings in another code word or catch word, paradidomi. We've seen that before. I'm not going to go over that tonight. That's another whole bucket of something. Romans 6.17, but thank God, he says, use the word carries here so we could say, by his grace. Thank God that by his grace, you who were once slaves of sin were obedient from the heart to that pattern of doctrine to which you were entrusted. This simply means that the Roman saints were saved by God's grace and that God had also subsequently elicited in them the obedience of faith. Kosman, Ernst Kosman is helpful here. His Romans 1980 commentary is awesome. He said, this obedience is made possible only by the address of divine love and orientation to the lordship of grace. The teacher that Paul is opposed to preaches that God in his wrath, in Romans 1.18, handed over paradidomy, the pagans, to gross immorality and to idolatrous ungodliness. Romans 124, 126, 128. Paul says here that God has handed over the saints, same word, handed over, once slaves of sin, to a pattern of doctrine which he led them to believe. It's a doctrine that was depicted in their baptism. Paul is reminding them of their water baptism, which he wasn't there for. That pattern of doctrine to which they were entrusted is simply their co-crucifixion, co-burial, co-resurrection with Christ. They became obedient to that from the heart. Romans 6.18, and having been liberated from sin, now that's again sin, capital S-I-N, as a suprahuman cosmic power in the apocalyptic war. You have been liberated from sin. You became enslaved to righteousness, or what I call rectitude here, which is a divinely approved livingness. You have been enslaved to a divinely approved kind of living. Once again, we should recall Paul W. Meyer's definition of justification, which we've hit twice in two messages. Quote, justification is a change of controlling allegiance. It sets one free from sin only insofar as it makes one an obedient slave of God. Now, Romans 6.19 goes on to say, Paul has a parenthesis here. And the translations are right to put a parenthesis around the first part of Romans 6.19. He says, I am speaking humanly here. I'm speaking in human terms by personifying sin. He's saying right here, I personified sin. I'm speaking in human terms. I'm making sin a personified being. I'm speaking in terms of human creatureliness here. I am speaking humanly here, that is by personifying both sin and righteousness as slave masters. Because of the weakness of your flesh, the weakness of our human nature. What does he mean here? It means you have to serve somebody because of the weakness of our human nature. We have to serve somebody. 
We have to serve somebody. It's either going to be you will be a servant of sin or a servant of self, which is the same as the servant of sin, or you will be a servant of God and a servant of righteousness. We have to serve somebody. That's why Paul says, I'm speaking using human terms here because of the weakness of your flesh, meaning you have to serve somebody. You are not your own master. The person who says, I'm my own man, is a slave to himself. He's a slave to sin. The person whose final anthem is, I did it my way, is a person who is saying, I served sin. Nobody does it their way. It's, we're all, because of the human condition, we must serve somebody. And it's better to serve God. Such a good thing. That's simply the human condition. You can't change it by thinking that you're a different kind of person now. Well, they say now there's not just two genders, there's 32 genders. Well, and somebody said to me, you're a cisgender. And I said, what? I beg your pardon. And they said, that means that you've accepted the gender you were born with. And I said, well, hell yeah, I guess I have. It's hard to help that. I don't want to go around on a street corner and say I'm cisgender because somebody, half of the population will think that I'm talking, I'm a sissy. The other half will think, well, you are intolerant toward the other 31 genders. Either way, you're stoned to death. Literally. Times we live in are so bizarre because they're unhinged from reality. They're unhinged from reality. They are so bizarre. For just as you all presented, there it is again, peristemi, peristemi, your members, tamele means similar to your bodies, as slaves to idolatrous impurity and to lawlessness as your master, resulting in slavery to and production of lawlessness. In the same way now, he says, now present your members. This is the completion of the imperatival inclusio as slaves to rectitude resulting in sanctification. Now, let me finish off Romans 6 because I want to finish a translation of Romans before we're done with the series. Verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, capital S-I-N, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. Now, Christ has been made our righteousness, so this is a similar way of saying slaves of Christ. God has made him to be righteousness for us. So when you were slaves to sin, you were free from allegiance to Christ. But what fruit, he's asking, what fruit were you having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end result of those things is death. Verse 22, but now, having been liberated from sin, your allegiance to sin, and having become enslaved to God, You are having fruit resulting in sanctification 
And the end result is the experience of the life of the coming age. That's how that should be interpreted. Not at the end of it, you get eternal life as a reward. No, you get, as as you present yourselves as righteous, as slaves to God's righteousness or slaves of Christ, the fruit that you bear is sanctification, and the result of that is even now, but then in bodily resurrection completely, but even now, the experience of the life of the age to come. The life that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For the wages that sin pays... It's the wages that sin your master pays you. He writes out a paycheck. It's death. The wages that sin pays is death. But the gift of God is the life of the coming age, which means even now, but in bodily resurrection completely with Christ, namely with Jesus our Lord. So see what we have here. We have from the right flank in closing. Romans 12.1. Peristemi. Romans 12.1. The beginning of our daily life as a community of believers. In love. Being in love. We have peristemi. That squeezes to the center, Romans 6, specifically 6, 13 through 19, where we have peristomy, 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 peristomy. What we are having here as a result of this is a community of believers. What we, going all the way back to Philippians, Back at the farm. What we have is a community that completely belongs to Christ and which has crucified the flesh with its inordinate passions and self serving desires. In Galatians 5.24. Such a community moves forward. With the guts of the lamb. Paul calls that the guts. Palankna, Philippians 1.8. Shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield. Advancing the gospel in Philippians 1.27. Together as one army of citizen soldiers of heaven. Marching forward. Advancing the gospel. As a missionary apostolate. Not intimidated by your adversaries. And there's a lot of them. Not intimidated by your adversaries. But rather intimidating them. That's what Philippians 128 says. Not intimidated by your adversaries. Sin, death, principalities and powers. Not intimidated by your adversaries but intimidating them. The life that we live in union with Christ, the newness of life and the newness of the Spirit, serving in the power of God through the Holy Spirit, is a threat to the powers of this age that are on their way out. And so, like General Mattis was asked recently, this is a good analogy and I'll close with it, they said, 
What keeps you up at night? And General Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis said, I'm not kept up at night. I keep other people up at night. That's exactly what happens when the believer in this apocalyptic war, which you're in, when we make ourselves available and present ourselves at the disposal of God, and we do this as all of our bodies as one sacrifice, then we are a phalanx of advancing orderly troops that have shields that touch each other's shields, shoulders that touch each other's shoulders. We go forward not intimidated by Goliath, but intimidating Goliath. Not being intimidated by the adversaries, which are the cosmic powers of sin and death, principalities and powers, and the wrongly used scriptures that Christians use as a power, we intimidate them. They don't intimidate us. God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mental stability. Father, we thank you that as we continue this strategy for some miraculous reason of mercy and grace, you've allowed this strategy to continue now into its 60th hour where it still works. At any time, we may have to abandon this strategy and move into another strategy at your behest and at your guidance. But so far, we see that tonight, a command, a great incentive is presented before us as a congregation that simply allows us to present our bodies, our entire being, even as Jesus prayed from the cross, into your hands, Father, I entrust my spirit. So we say, at your disposal, Father, we present our entire being. This does not mean, and we recognize this, that we will enter into any kind of sinless perfection, a false doctrine. But it does mean that from this moment and for every moment, we are at the disposal and at the service of the one to whom we have presented ourselves. So we thank you, Father, for this privilege tonight because we may have made a decision, even in the weakness of our human condition, we may have made a decision that you, in your divine omnipotent love, will honor what a thing that is, what grace And we do it on the basis of the ever-renewable mercies of God, which assure that we will never perish.